When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, Mark Edgar Stewart here, and I'm in the studio, Electrophonic Studio, with my buddy here, Mr. Scott Bomar, and uh, real excited to be here. Um, I've been here quite a few times. It's a really cool place, and uh, excited to talk to Scott, ask him a few questions, kind of bug him a little bit. Scott's sort of a shy guy, so uh, hopefully you don't mind me prying just a little bit. Pry away, Mark. Pry away. All right. So yeah, seems like we both kind of uh, we, we kind of came up in the Memphis music scene together. I remember you were in a band called. Uh, Impala, which is an awesome instrumental band, and then you eventually got into recording. So, kind of, what was the whole process of you kind of going from playing music to recording music? I was always, uh, I've always loved music. I've always loved playing music. I've always been real interested in recorded music and recording studios. And uh, before the band Impala, I played in other you know, local bands in Memphis, we bought a bands that would play at the Antenna Club. and Take us with them on a journey into this youthful subculture of Memphis. Tonight in the first part of their series, they introduce us to these young people who have left the mainstream to be part of an alternative lifestyle, and they ask them the question, who are you? The youth scene is driven in a large part by its music. This is called thrash, hardcore, or punk. It's harsh, relentless, and makes a point. The first time I ever went to a studio, it was Doug Easley's studio. I think I remember you lurking around in the background at, at Easley McCain way back in the day. So that's, that's where you got your start? Yes, okay. and even before he was located there, he had the studio in his backyard. And that was the first studio I ever recorded at. And it was I recorded there when I think when I was 15. And... Um, just that first taste of being in the studio was like, this is where I want to be. And you know, after that, uh, you know, my band Impala, we uh, made a couple of records at Easley McCain after they moved. And then um, we then uh, also made a couple of records at Sam Phillips with Roland James. That's and right, yeah. That was uh, working with Roland James at Sam Phillips. That was just that was like the experience of a lifetime. I think we did about three albums with him, and he was uh, he was a great teacher. You know, when you were messing up, he'd tell you you're messing up, and yeah. he uh, but he did it in a real funny way. But he was real good at working with people in the studio, so I learned a lot from him. I love Roland. He, he was just a, a gentle, gentle soul. You know, and he kind of had a way of. Uh, making you laugh and critiquing there at the same time. Well, this is Mojo here, still at uh, Phillips Recording Studio on the fabulous Madison Avenue in the fabulous Memphis, Tennessee. And we just put down our super hit song. I'm not sure, maybe it's called uh, Kyle Petty's Dad. Or 
Richard Petty, and it's, it's a monster. And the producer of this here track, the Godhead himself, Mr. Roland James. How you doing? As a musician, you're uh, responsible for what you do, what you play, and what you say, and how you act. In the studio, behind the glass, you kind of, at least you feel like you're responsible for everything that everybody does in every, the entire session. So I think, uh, I think being behind the glass, you feel a little more responsible, like you're a little more important maybe than you were as just a musician, because you're kind of in charge at least partially in charge of the entire operation. So your mentors, wow, that's pretty cool. So it was Doug Easley, Roland James, and Willie Mitchell too. Willie right? Mitchell, yeah. After um, you know Impala broke up, and we you know we've reformed now and are still playing, but we broke up in the I don't know probably like around '97, and then after that I played bass and kind of worked at a couple different studios and things and. Uh, I ended up uh, going over to Royal Studios. I started a band called the Bow Keys, a soul band. We were formed probably around 99 or 2000. Mm -hmm. We went into Royal Studios to make our first record, which is called the Royal Sessions. And I think that was around 2003 or 2004 when we went to Royal. And I'd been to Royal a time or two before and played on sessions, and I met Willie then. but. Uh, Working on the Bo Keys album there, you know, Willie and I like really bonded during that time and I bonded with Willie and his whole family, all the Mitchells, and uh, that was a you know, great experience and you know, I learned a lot from Willie. You know, Willie was uh, a great teacher and he was not, uh, he wasn't someone like if, if you were friends with him and you... I don't know, we just had a great relationship yeah. where he would, uh, he was real giving with information. You know, he would, anytime I asked him about anything, you know, how did you get this sound or, you know, questions about recording or producing or questions about the music business, he yeah. was always real uh, open with information. He always helped me. Same thing with Roland. You know, anytime I needed help with something, you know, I, be it something about recording or the music business, he would always help me out, answer my questions, and having people like that that have that much experience in the music business, it, it's just real invaluable. I think that's awesome. I mean, if you're going to have a have a three mentors, three teachers, it seems like you you learn from the best. Yeah. So yeah, that that, that that's way cool. Um, so when was the moment that you decided to uh, open your own studio, kind of take the leap into electrophonic here? So I'd always sort of been collecting gear, little by little, little pieces of gear, and I had a, a four-track cassette machine that I'd been using for years to make demos, and even a couple of times when my old band Impala would need to do songs for compilations and we wouldn't have much of a budget for it, I would record it in a garage on my four-track cassette machine, and a lot of times, you know, the recordings I made on that four-track cassette machine I was happier with than any you know any recordings I'd ever done so uh, I'd always kind of dreamed of having my own studio but uh, I uh, the day that I signed my contract to do the film Hustle and Flow that was the time I, the next day was basically when I said okay I need a studio now because I had to record a lot of music for it 
and I couldn't really afford to like go to the studio, you know, go and pay studio time for studio time every time I needed to record something for that movie. And at the time, I lived in a hundred-year-old shotgun house in Midtown Memphis, and uh, I had room in there to. I was already had a space in there where I was having uh, rehearsals for the Bow Keys and. Uh, I ended up buying a recording console in Nashville, and I bought uh, some Scully tape machines from Bruce Watson from Fat Possum Records. This console came from Nashville. It's uh, it's an early MCI console. Uh, Willie Mitchell uh, had one just like this, and uh, it's still over at Royal. It's in the studio that's upstairs over there, but um, he got his in the early 70s, and uh, so a lot of the early and mid '70s high record stuff was done on on this uh, console like this, and then uh, I've got a uh, two Scully tape machines. There's a lot of records that I make on this machine, and it never even touches the computer. The Cindy Lauper record was all done on that machine. That was the moment, you know, I, that I did it was uh, when I did Hustle and Flow. That's when it made sense for me to have my own studio. So I, I made, you know, made the studio in this house, but I basically just did it, made it so I could record my own music for for films. Awesome. <clears throat> so like Hustle and Flow, let's talk about that for a second. So that was uh, that wound up being a huge hit. It won an Oscar. It is hard out here for a pimp. Now that might seem like an unusual choice for an Academy Award nominated song, but Chris also forgot Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo. So tonight, one of these nominees joins the roll call of Best Original Song. And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> it's hard out here for a pimp. Oh my God. We want to thank Keith Young, our choreographer. Yes. Man, help me out. Uh, whole Sony Records, Lisa Ellis, our moms, our whole family. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Selecto Hits for giving us a chance. The Academy, we love the Academy. Hey. You know what I'm saying? Gil Case. Everybody, man. man. We love you. Hell, I got plenty of talent. I don't know nobody else now. I want to thank, thank, thank everybody. Lisa man. Ellis, Dunny Einer. Yeah. Once again, our families. Ludacris, Chocolate, what's up? Going down, we love you man. George Clooney, my favorite man. He showed me love when I first met him. Tennessee, we bring the house. We out of here. Yeah. Uh. Tennessee. <laughs> you know what? I think it just got a little easier out here for a pimp. I think it did. How come they're the most excited people here tonight? Why is that? They're thrilled. They're, they're, they're thrilled. That's how you accept an Oscar. Yes. So you're, you're doing this, so you're, you're, you're still relatively new at this, and you're all of a sudden you're thrown into this big kind of Hollywood budget kind of deal. I mean, was there ever this kind of, oh shit moment, like what the heck am I doing? How did I get here? Uh, I, I'm actually doing this. Like, tell me about that time. So that seems like a really, really big opportunity. It know? was. Um, it was an incredible opportunity, uh, but I'd never, I'd, I knew that movie, I had a feeling that it'd be a successful movie, but I had no idea it would be 
successful on a, on a mainstream level. Yeah. I figured it'd be like a kind of an indie hit. Because uh, Craig's film before that, you know, he shot it himself. He did it on DV. Born Hungry? Yeah. yeah. He shot it on, you know, digital video cameras. He uh, edited it himself. And at that time, that wasn't a real... He was really a pioneer yeah. in doing that, doing a film that way. And I'd sort of assume, when he gave me the script for the movie, I'd kind of assumed it would be another project that he did himself, that he shot on DV and edited himself. And I, But I knew with, the, it, with everything, the momentum that the poor and hungry had, I figured, you know, Hustle and Flow would be successful, like I said, on, on more of an indie level. But then um, it just... It ended up being something that was like way bigger than I think any of us ever thought it would be. But um, it, you know, it took like five years for that to ever yeah. even get off the ground. So from the time Craig handed me the script and said, hey, I've got this film, I, you know, would you be interested in working on it? And from the time I read that script until the time the film actually got made was like five years. So by the time, it, you know, if it would have immediately happened, I think there would have been this feeling of like well, I'm in over my head on this what am I doing you know being overwhelmed but since it took so long by the time it happened it was like okay I'm, I'm I've been waiting on this for five years so I'm ready I'm so ready to go ready. Yeah. I was ready You're yeah just killing it so did you work on Black Snake Moan yes awesome so uh did you meet a Samuel L. Jackson uh, yeah was he pretty cool very cool I worked with him a lot uh before the before they shot any footage we had to record all the songs for the film so we. So did he actually play guitar? Some, yes. Okay. Yeah, he put a lot of work into that role. He has a insane work ethic. He worked really, really hard at it, and he got where he could play pretty well on the guitar. He came down to, before we did any filming, he came to Memphis and we took a road trip. We went all through Mississippi and he got together and worked with a bunch of different musicians like Cedric Burnside, Kenny Brown, Alvin Young Bloodheart, um, Big Jack Johnson down in Clarksdale. We just kind of went around Mississippi and hung yeah. out with, awesome. soaked it up and uh he got a lot out of that, you know, and it really, uh, it was, that was a great experience working on that. Remember, we worked on a movie here once with Marshall Crenshaw. That's right. That? Losers Take All. Losers Take All, yeah, that was, what, about 10 years ago. Was it that long ago? Yeah, I think it was. It's 1986. Nobody goes to roller rinks anymore. Hey, losers. You guys ever thought about joining a real band? We don't even know you. I'm Greg, Greg Glaverman. I manage and promote bands. It says here you sell furniture, Greg. I booked you a show this weekend, a real show. It's at the bottom of a four-band bill, but it's a good start. We need to start a band. 
<laughs> I saw that movie. It's actually pretty good. I liked it. Yeah, that's but, uh, a fun movie. So by that time, I guess word was out that you were getting a lot of this movie work. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I had a pretty good run doing yeah. movie stuff. I've done a couple of television commercials and things like that. So let's go back to, uh, uh, I want to know how this kind of happened. The whole Bo Keys thing. You talk about this band, you're in Bo Keys. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just all these A-list session players from like a golden era of music. So so how did you get all these guys in a band together? And just tell me how all that sort of came about. Well, the very first Bo Keys show, I think it was in 99 or 2000, and it was playing at the Shangri-La Records holiday party. We backed up a guy named Sir Mac Rice, who was a songwriter and artist, and he he had some records on Stax and was a writer there. He wrote Mustang Sally and a lot of other really great 60s and 70s soul songs. He's a great writer. So that was our first gig. So we, we'd been kind of working up some instrumental stuff, but we'd never played out in public. And then my friends over at Shangri-La Records were like, hey, we're doing this party. Do you have any ideas on somebody we could hire and I said well I've been really obsessed with Sir Mac Rice and maybe we could get him to come down from Detroit and you know I could this band that I have that's been working on this instrumental material we could like back him up so that was our first show but the lineup of the band was a little different then none of the got you know former stacks or high records guys were in the band then and then you know, we played a little bit after that, and then I started uh, doing some work for the Stax Music Academy. And this was before the Stax Museum was even opened. Like before this, as they were getting all the funding together and putting everything together for the Stax Museum, the first thing they did in that neighborhood was do uh, the first thing they did was the Stax Music Academy, and they did like the summer camp for kids over in the Soulsville neighborhood, and they hired different local musicians to t be instructors. And um, it w Calvin Newborn was one of the instructors, and he's great jazz, Memphis jazz guitarist, and I'd been working with him, and so that was kind of, I think, maybe how I ended up getting over there was because I'd been doing stuff with Calvin, and I remember the first day I was there, I remember this guy with this really kind of crazy, rough voice came in carrying a wah-wah pedal and talking about Shaft. And I'm like, who is this guy? And then I heard him play. I heard him showing this kid how to play guitar and play wah-wah. And then I heard the guy play the opening guitar part for Shaft. And I'm like, this is Skip Pitts. Like, I'd always seen the name Skip Pitts on Isaac Hayes records and on Stax records. And I'd always wondered who this, like, mythical wah-wah guitar player was. And I was like, it was just like, it was this amazing moment when I heard him play for the first time. And he had just moved back to Memphis from D.C., but he had been Isaac Hayes' guitar player for, like, 38 or 39 years. And uh, then another person who was an instructor there was Willie Hall. It was kind of the same thing. I was like, you know, doing my thing at the, you know, music academy over there. And then I, like, I see this guy helping this kid set up a drum set. And, and then I see the guy who's helping the kid. I see him sit down at the drum set and start playing, like, 16th notes on the hi-hat. I'm like, 
man, that's the opening for Shaft. I'm like, that sounds exactly like the record. And then I'm like, wait a second, that's Willie Hall. That's the guy who played on Shaft and who's in the Blues Brothers. So, uh, you know, Willie had been living in Atlanta and he moved back to Memphis. So when, when the Stax Museum was getting going, I mean, that's been such, that museum and the Music Academy has been such a positive thing for Memphis because yeah. it kind of brought, these former musicians who were studio musicians and who worked there, it brought those people back to Memphis because they weren't all living in Memphis, but when the museum was getting going, there was like this momentum that was created and they wanted to be part of it. So they came back to Memphis to be part of it. And, uh, you know, they were working at the Music Academy. Skip was still playing with Isaac, but Isaac, you know, would only play like maybe a couple of dates a month. So Skip was interested in working you know when in town when he wasn't on the road with Isaac and Willie wasn't playing with anyone at the time he'd just done like the second Blues Brothers movie and he was looking for gigs and I thought man I've got this I've got this band that to me you know when I started the band Skip Pitts and Willie Hall were like who I had in mind like I wanted the other guys in the band to like play like or sound like and then I met these guys like well these are the guys that I'm you know, this band is like kind of based on that sound. And yeah. I don't remember what the first gig was that we did with them, but uh, it might have been something over at Stax, but I can't really remember. But they uh, they started playing with us, and, uh, you know, they're on the Royal Sessions and Skip's on all of our albums. And unfortunately, you know, Skip passed away a couple years ago, but uh, he was a real special guitar player, a real special guy. He had an amazing career. Played on a lot of hit records. I love uh, that the first time you ever met him, that he literally walked in the door holding a wah wah pedal. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, Skip played on uh, Gene Chandler's Rainbow Sixty Five. He did that when he was probably fifteen or sixteen years old. Then he played on the Isley Brothers' "It's Your Thing," and then he played on all the Isaac stuff. So he he had really had an amazing career, and I learned a lot from Skip. Skip yeah. taught me a lot about music. He taught me a lot about the music business. He taught me a lot about running a band. I learned a lot about recording. Willie Hall, you know, the, and there's so many other great, amazing musicians who have been part of the Bow Keys. You know, Ben Cauley, who was uh, one of the original members of the Bar Keys, who played on tons of Stax record sessions. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Howard Grimes, from the high rhythm section yeah. and Archie Turner from the high rhythm section. Those guys have been, uh, it's been amazing uh, working with them. You know, I've learned so many of the, it's the, the, the great thing about the Bo Keys is it's been a great, um, the younger guys in the band, we've all been able to learn so much from the guys in the band that have had all the experience from you know doing all the sessions at stacks and high it's been a just okay. amazing learning experience so so this eventually morphed into this is fast forward a little bit uh, uh don bryant mm -hmm. was that basically bo keys as the backing band yes and uh tell us about don bryant and his background and and the little run you had last year which i just thought was awesome so our the bo keys trumpet player mark franklin he's uh he's an amazing musician, amazing arranger, and he's had an amazing career. You know, when I first met Mark, I think he was probably in his early 20s, and he was playing with Bobby Blue Bland. And I was, like, really impressed. Like, this this guy's, like, my 
you know, I was, he and I are about the same age and I was just blown away and really impressed. Like, man, this guy's like 21 years old out on the road with Bobby Bland. It's like, how cool was that? And he also, uh, around that time was playing with Ann Peebles, who is married to Don Bryant. And I remember, you know, as long as we've had the Bo Keys going, which, you know, I guess is about 17 years now, um, Mark has always talked about how how great Don Bryant was when they would go out and do, when he would go, when Mark would go out and play with Ann Peebles, Don Bryant would come out and open up the show. And Mark would always talk about how great Don was. And uh, I was always a huge fan of Don Bryant's records. His 60s records on high, or I think it's, you know, I think it's some of my favorite stuff yeah. recorded high. Um, but uh, at Willie Mitchell's funeral, um, I was asked to play uh, with Don, and uh, we did a song called That Driving Beat, which is was Boo Mitchell's favorite Willie Mitchell song. And uh, Don Bryant was Willie Mitchell's first singer. When uh, Willie Mitchell you know, before he produced all the hit records he had, he had a band in Memphis that was called Willie Mitchell and the Four Kings. And Don Bryant was the lead singer. So, you know, he, Willie had these legendary uh, house gigs at places like the Manhattan Club and the Plantation Inn and places like that. And uh, Don was his vocalist. Willie had, one of Willie's first hit records was called That Driving Beat, and Don is the singer on that record. And Boo Mitchell asked for Don to perform it, and uh, I, I was asked to play bass, and uh, Howard Grimes played drums. And at Willie's funeral, that was the first time I ever played with Howard Grimes, who plays drums in the Bow Keys, and it was the first time I ever worked with Don. And, uh, you know, I... I stayed in touch with Howard. I'd met Howard before, but I'd stayed I stayed in touch with Howard and he ended up playing in the Bow Keys. But uh Don I'd always had him in my mind. I'd always thought, you know, I'd really like to um work with him one day because his voice still sounds exactly like it did in, in the sixties, like he hadn't lost anything vocally. And uh you know, it's funny how timing works out on things. It's so so funny how it works out because um, sometimes, you know, you'll try to do something and the timing won't work out right, and then other times something will just happen by accident and the timing, timing will be perfect. So probably five, four years ago, I think, I um, Percy Wiggins, who is also uh, – you know, great Memphis vocalist and who the Bow Keys do a lot of work with, and we've made a lot of records with Percy singing. Percy uh, was having some health issues, and uh, we had some shows booked, and we didn't really, you know, we were kind of trying to figure out what we were going to do. We were, we didn't want to cancel the shows, and we were trying to figure out who we were going to use for a vocalist. And literally the same week that I was trying to figure out how we were going to get a sub for Percy, I get a call from Don Bryant. And Don said, yeah, I've been talking to Howard some, and uh, 
he's been telling me, you know, what you guys have been doing, and I'm uh, I'm kind of interested in maybe getting back into the getting getting back into doing music again. I said, well, you're getting in touch with me at a, a perfect time because but he was pretty open to it. You didn't have to twist his arm, like. No, you know, he'd been doing uh, gospel music. Uh, he's been real involved with gospel. So I know for Don, he didn't want to turn his back on the church, you know. So that was, I think he might have had some hesitation because of that, you know, doing secular music. But no, he was he was real interested in, uh, he was starting to have the desire to get back into doing music again. And I told him, I said, you're getting in touch at a good, a good time because we've got work coming up and we don't have a singer right now. We, we need somebody to fill in for Percy for us. And so Don, Don uh, came and we started rehearsing with him. And I'll never forget the first, uh, the first time we rehearsed with him, the guys in the band, they were all looking at me like their eyes were like this big because he sounded so good like their everybody's jaw dropped just hearing how good he sounded it was uh everybody's just blown away so we started working with him and you know we were real impressed with how great he sounded but then when we actually played a show with him and saw how good he was at working with the audience it was like man this guy's really something else <laughs> Fortunately, you know, Percy Wiggins, his health's great, and he came back, and so then we have Percy and Don Bryant singing with us, and, um, you know, the other guys in the band and myself and Don, we all kind of started saying, man, you know, we really ought to do a record together, like, you sound good, you know, you sound really good, like, really, let's talk about doing a record, and I know he wasn't 100% convinced about doing a record. Yeah. You know, it took that took a little convincing, but uh Bruce Watson from Fat Possum saw us play one day. I think we might have been playing at the Levitt Shell or Lafayette's, I can't remember. But uh Bruce is also a big uh Don Bryant fan. And he's said before like, you know, Don's records, that's probably some of my favorite stuff on High and it's some of my favorite stuff on High too and uh he saw us and he he told me after he was like, man, I'd love to do a record on Don. You know, let's talk about it. So Bruce and I and Don, you know, we had a meeting and we were all on the same page about doing a record. And uh, it was about a year ago we cut the record. and it's uh, great. It's it awesome. came out last May and, and it's just been really well accepted. Yeah, it made uh, some waves and that led to what, touring uh, the States and touring Europe too. Yeah. Got a, we were on the road a lot last year and... Got a whole another, you know, our year 2018 looks to be another, you know, real full year of touring yeah. with Don. So, so what is the difference between uh, music lovers in America and music lovers in Europe? I'm sure there is a difference to audiences. Tell us about it. Well, both America and 
and Europe and all over the world. I mean, you know, there's a lot of great music fans out there, and if it weren't for the music fans, none of us would be here doing any of this stuff, you know. It's like those diehard fans that buy all the records and tell their friends that might not be as in tune with things about good records and get them to buy them. Those, if it weren't for those people, we'd be in trouble. Mm -hmm. But um, yep. I've noticed in Europe, and particularly France, that they don't really distinguish. In, in America, it seems like you've got your top-tier pop stars here, and then sort of everybody else is, like, below. Yeah. And there's sort of this glass ceiling that if you're, like, not a pop artist, you're only ever going to be this big. Well, in Europe, that doesn't seem to be the case. In Europe, it seems like it doesn't matter how old you are or where you're from or what genre of music you're doing. They don't look – they don't – categorize things as much to them i think it's just good music is good music and it, you know don bryant to them is like a, a pop star yeah you know he gets treated like a a pop star over there you know oh and sometimes some places in the states you experience that but not yeah that's that's what i've always heard the differences between america and europe was just the there's a different level of appreciation very much so it was, was really really cool yeah and it it seems like over there that also, I mean, the same goes for the press and, you know, radio play and all that. There's things that over there, it's just more wide open. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter what type music you play or how old you are or any of those things. It just doesn't matter. If you're making good music that resonates with them, you're going to have all the same access that a pop star would have. Yeah. All right. Two words. Cindy Lauper. Okay, well, um, I love Cindy, and getting to do that Memphis Blues record was... Uh, Which I heard it. It was great. So I, I want to hear more about it, how, how that came about. It just seems kind of like two separate parts of the world just sort of came together here, you know, so kind of tell us the events leading up to that. <clears throat> so I have a, a good friend named Jed Katrancha, and he works at a company called Downtown Music. And uh, he's in New York. He's a longtime friend. And Jed got in touch with me and said, hey, uh, can you send me some MP3s of some music you've worked on? I've got somebody in my office who's looking to come to me Memphis and make a blues record. And I was telling her and her manager about you, and they wanted to hear some music. He goes, I can't tell you who it is, but just send me some mp3s because they're interested i'm like okay so i sent email my friend jed some bokey stuff and i can't remember what what else but just a couple of you know more bluesy projects that i'd worked on and uh sent it over and i didn't hear anything for like a week and i got back in touch and i'm like hey did whatever happened about that project you were telling me about and he's like well they really liked it and they're interested you know and and then I find out that it's Cindy Lauper. So uh, I first talked to her manager, Lisa Barbarese, and I kind of I had a real good phone conversation with Lisa. And then she's like, okay, well, I'm going to put you in touch with Michael Alago. He's the A&R person on the record. I'm like, okay. 
I talked to Michael Alago, and him and I hit it off, and that conversation went really well. And he's like, okay, well, now I'm going to have you talk to Cindy. And so then I talked to her, and that went really well. And uh, so we, so initially, um, she came just for a weekend and recorded two songs just to see how it would go, to see if she liked recording here, and to see if she got, like, the results that she wanted to get. So uh, she came, and I, it was like in the dead of winter. She came to Memphis, and uh, she's got a great energy and a real great spirit about her. She's a kind of a force of nature. And uh, so she came in and recorded two songs, and her and her whole camp, they were all real happy with what they got. And so she booked the time to come back and do the whole record, and... Uh, I went up to New York and worked with her on the material. You know, it was all covers, uh, and her and I both, we probably had like 200 songs that we yeah. were going through. We spent a lot of time going through material for that record, you know. We had just like a massive, you know, iTunes playlist that like were this long that we were going through to pick out songs from, and then, you know, we worked the arrangements up her and I took a guitar to New York and her and I got together kind of worked out the song keys and the arrangements of the songs and she came in into Memphis and we recorded it and uh, well one of the things that was so amazing about that record were all the guests that were on that record and that was the one thing you know when I signed on to do it you know they told me they wanted to have guests on different songs and I said you know I said I really I said, it'd be my preference if you have guests that they actually come to the studio and record their parts at the studio because I don't really like these records with a bunch of guests where you can tell that they just... It's kind of phoned in. Yeah. yeah. And so that was what was real cool about that record is that all the guests except one, B.B. King, I had to go to Las Vegas and record his part. But everybody else came into the studio. So we had uh, Alan Toussaint came in, and that was like... I still get goosebumps thinking about, you know, he's one of my favorite artists, songwriters, musicians of all time. I love Alan Tucson. I love New Orleans music. I love his catalog. And getting to, like, put a microphone in front of a piano and record him playing was, like, completely amazing. And he was such a sweet guy and, like, it was he really loved working here and he really loved working with Skip Pitts and when the Bo Key after that record when the Bo Keys would play in New Orleans, Alan would come out and see us play. And that was just like the coolest thing. Yeah, I bet. Um we played uh this small club in New Orleans called Chicky Wawa and I remember he before he passed away, I remember him coming out and seeing us play and I just that meant the world to me that Alan Toussaint would come and see our band play and uh we had Johnny Lang, he came in, uh, Kenny Brown, who played with R.L. Burnside, he came in and played guitar. Um, I know I'm probably leaving some other folks out. Yeah. B.B., like I said, played on it, but I had to go out and get put his part on in Las Vegas. Yeah. I think a lot of people were surprised when they heard that record. It was great. Charlie Musselwhite. I can't leave okay. Charlie yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he did a lot record. of touring. Yeah, I, I'm real proud of that record. Um I think it did real well for her. She she did she toured off that record for two years mm -hmm. all over the world twice. 
and it was always my intention to do something real. So Josh introduced me to this guy, Scott Bomar, who was down in Memphis, who's this guy who works with these guys who were the original high rhythm section. He's a very sweet, very talented guy who's nuts for um, the way things were. So we recorded on an eight track um, machine. This was an extraordinary moment for me as a singer because I wanted to go back and relearn. And these, this music was the music that we cut our teeth on as singers. You know, all, all singers that sing this music, any music that's being done today came from them. And I, I really think I was born to sing this stuff. As you know, there's been lots of changes in the music business since you first started out. Mm -hmm. Things are way different now. Um, elaborate on that. Like, well, what are your thoughts on the music business today versus, you know, when you started in, what, 15 or so years ago? Sometimes I wonder, like, if I was, like, getting in this business today, if I'd have, like, a shot at it, you know, and if, if it's harder now, easier now. It's... Uh, you know, everything changes, and with the music business, it's like, on one hand, it's like it's easier to get your music out there, it's easier maybe to get your music heard, but on the other hand, you probably don't get compensated for your music as much, because streaming doesn't pay what physical product sales sells, and then, um, you know, record labels, they don't want to give uh budgets for records too much anymore because they can't make as much money as they used to be able to yeah. make but um i think with you know the music business like any business you have to be diverse and you have to be able to do a lot of different things in order to survive so uh i've always been somewhat of a jack of all trades i think by both just my nature and also by necessity so uh you know i produce people's records, I engineer people's records, I'll play bass, I write original music, I write songs, and I've kind of done a, like a little bit of everything in the music business, but I enjoy um, doing all of those different things, but I think that if I weren't able to do a bunch of different things, I think it'd be harder to make a living doing it. Yeah. Um, but somehow, you know, I think it's, you know, kind of what I was saying earlier about the music fans that make all this work. I mean, if it weren't for those diehard fans out there in the world that are, you know, that just love music, I, you know, I, we wouldn't have, you wouldn't have anything. True. Yeah. So, uh, any advice? To, if there's any kids out there watching today who want to get into the recording business, do you have any advice for them? Yeah. If it's uh, if. You know, if it's something that you're really passionate about and you really love it, you, you have to pursue it. And uh, I would say don't go into it expecting that you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> go into it because you love doing it and uh, expect to not make much money for a really long time. And it's going to take probably a while to establish yourself. Um but if it's what you love to do, don't let anybody talk you out of it. You know, you got to stay focused on it. And the more experience someone can get that's wanting to do recording or anything creative, the more 
the more experience you can have being around it, yeah. the the better. And even if even if it doesn't pay, even if you're going and interning for free somewhere, or, you know, any any aspect of the music business or entertainment business you can be around and learn from, it, it, you know, would be good. So, where do you see yourself in, say, ten years? What are your hopes? And accomplishments, you've accomplished a lot. I think you've done quite a bit. Oh, thank you. I'm sure you want more. So what do you say 10 years from now? What do you see yourself? It's hard. It's really hard to say. Um, it's really hard for me to say. You just never know where life's going to take you, and you never know. Uh, I just kind of take it one day at a time. I don't know if I've thought that far ahead yet. <laughs> just keep picking up that phone and hoping there's something on the other end, I guess, right? Yeah. Um yeah, you know, the older I get, the more I enjoy writing songs and the more it kind of seems like that's the, you know, that's really songs are the center of everything. You know, if you don't have songs, you don't really, none of this other stuff really matters. you got to have yeah. songs. So the older I get, the more I seem to, like, focus in on songwriting and the more I think I'd like to concentrate on that. But I always love, you know, working with, other people and helping people make records and so I, I'm hoping 10 years from now I'm still you know working on music and helping people make records and writing songs there's not anything more satisfying to me than to be part of a song you know to write create a song and then hear somebody perform it yeah, that is that's like one of the greatest thrills there is, in my opinion. Especially if you hear it on the radio, you know yeah, that's I bet. that's yeah. magical too. Yeah. Well, there you go, Scott Bomar, ladies and gentlemen. Here it is, Electrophonic Studio. Man, appreciate you coming by. Thank you, Mark. Glad Had to be time. here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.